Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. This is your deep dive for the week of February 14th. The justices are coming back from their second winter break to hear arguments in February. And we're going to be discussing a big administrative and environmental law case with our guests today. Uh, Before we do that, I said the justices were on a break, but that doesn't mean they're not working. And they proved it to us all by issuing an opinion in an Alabama redistricting case. Jordan, will you bring us up to speed on that? Sure. And at least some of them are working, as we'll see. What happened was a three-judge panel that included two Trump appointees, I should point out, ordered Alabama to draw a new congressional map ahead of the November election. The panel said the map diluted black voting power, basically packing too many black people into one district where they could actually be spread into two districts, which would give them greater representation overall. And in a 5-4 order on Monday, the Supreme Court put the original map back in play. Now, getting to what I said about the court working, Kimberly, why did the court do that? Well, in theory, we have to guess because this was the latest shadow docket action without an explanation from the majority. We did have a concurrence from Kavanaugh joined by Alito. They said using the original map was necessary because otherwise drawing new maps would be happening too close to the election. Kavanaugh noted the primary election start via absentee voting on March 30th. Now, in her dissent for the three Democratic appointees, Kagan said the majority went, quote, badly wrong, end quote. She said the court was basically making new law and diluting black voting power on the shadow docket without explanation. She said, quote, Today's decision is one more in a disconcertingly long line of cases in which this court uses its shadow docket to signal or make changes in the law without anything approaching full briefing and argument, end quote. And that apparently touched a nerve because Kavanaugh responded to it in his concurrence saying, quote, the catchy but worn out rhetoric about the shadow docket is off target, end quote. So Kimberly, I said it's a 5-4 case, which means there's one more dissenter. Guess who that is? It's got to be that liberal Chief Justice Roberts, who notoriously votes uh, for the liberal sides in um, in voting rights case, right? It, it's it's half right, at least. So he is one of the four dissenters from the majority that granted a stay for Alabama, but he did not join the three Democratic appointees in their dissent. He wrote his own dissent, basically saying he's going to be in the majority ruling for the Republicans when the court hears the case on the merits, but he doesn't think it was right to stay the map. And he would have allowed the new maps to be in effect for the upcoming election. And so that was his disagreement. He disagreed with the stay, but he also agreed that the substantive law underlying all of this needs some more clarification, which most likely would result in an opinion more along the 6-3 variety that's a cleaner split like we saw in the Bernabich case. But for now, anyway, he was in the short end of this on the four side of the 5-4. It kind of reminds me a little bit about of the Texas six-week abortion ban case dealing with SB8 in where we saw the chief justice also vote with the liberals on the issue of a stay, which involved this procedural ground. Although if we think that, um, you know, kind of the underlying dispute of whether or not 
you know, Roe versus Wade should stand or, or whether or not there should be um, abortion restrictions available to states. You know, we think probably on the merits, Roberts would go the other way. And that's similar here. You know, this case really deals with um, something that comes up a lot in these election cases is the Purcell principle, which is supposed to be just purely procedural, um, which says, you know, when we're close to an election, uh, we're not going to make any changes. Um, we not just being the Supreme Court, but being courts in general. Um, and so they tend to just kind of keep uh, whatever the state has as the status quo. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, ambiguities in that. But at least from Kavanaugh's point of view, that's the sole basis on which they're their ruling. Right. He's reiterating this is not a merits decision. Again, like we saw in the SB8 litigation, right? Right. And again, like in the SB8 litigation, I guess if you were to tell a person in Alabama, just like you were to tell a person in Texas who's trying to get abortion, don't worry, this was not a merits determination. They would say, oh, okay, thank you for pointing that out to me. I'll get along with my day now. So it's a bit of a semantic play going on, whether it's true or not, it seems. Or if you were to tell someone in Texas or someone in Alabama, um, the person who who voted for you was Chief Justice Roberts, they'd be similarly surprised. Um, because of course, Chief Justice Roberts has been kind of at the head of a lot of the cases, um, which progressives in particular have say been cutting back on voting rights. And I think most notably Shelby County, which effectively undid um, preclearance under the Voting Rights Act. Act, which is why we have a lot of, um, you know, these election cases, although not this redistricting one, but other election changes that the court's been grappling with. So that's Alabama. Anything else to say on that one? I mean, there's a whole bunch to say on that one. The worn out rhetoric. Oof, that's that doesn't even sound like Kavanaugh to me. Yeah, well, that was interesting since it was the only second time that Kagan mentioned that in a dissent. So obviously he's referring to something more perhaps than just what the justices are saying. I was talking to Steve Laddick about this, who's arguably the lead critic of the shadow docket or one of them anyway, and he said it was the first time he had been subtweeted in a judicial <laughs> opinion. So that might have been some of what was happening here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that language really struck me because that just didn't seem like Kavanaugh, um, although he was joined by Alito, and you wonder if he had some input because he, as you pointed out to me when we were talking about this story, it is similar language to some of the um, language Alito's used about uh, the shadow docket and speeches that he's given in public too, talking about um, rhetoric and kind of. Yeah, I think so. Alito was kind of Alito was lurking in the shadows of Kavanaugh's concurrence, you could say. On the shadow nugget? Okay. Wow. That's meta. Um, speaking of meta, uh, let's get into this EPA case uh, with our guest. So our guest today is Jonathan Adler. He's a professor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, where he teaches environmental, administrative, and constitutional law. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. So uh, just to kind of, before we get into the nitty gritty of the case, just kind of wondering, this is not the first time the Clean Power Plan has come before the justices. Can you give us a little um, description about uh, what this plan is about and why why we're, I guess, why we're hearing this case? Sure. Yes. To understand this case, you really have to understand uh, the legal wrangling over uh, the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions from power plants that's been going on now for uh, almost a decade. Um, during the Obama administration, uh, the EPA uh, developed regulations under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act uh, called the Clean Power Plan that were intended to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector, uh, not only through the 
traditional approach to reducing emissions where you install a technology or change the operation of an emitting facility. But because we're talking about greenhouse gases that come from electricity generation more broadly, thinking about energy systems more broadly and how you can reduce greenhouse gases, not only by installing technologies at a power plant, for example, but also perhaps by switching fuels uh, to natural gas or to renewables or doing other things that can reduce the overall emissions of uh, power production and distribution. Uh, challengers to this plan um, sought a stay of the regulation, uh, arguing that uh, given how long it takes for power plants to change their operations and, and, and comply with regulations, that the regulation had to be put on hold um, pending judicial review. Uh, otherwise, they would be forced to make these investments whether or not um, the, the regulation was valid. The D.C. Circuit did not uh, accept that stay request, but the Supreme Court perhaps surprisingly did and voted five to four to essentially put that regulation on hold pending normal judicial review uh, of of the regulation. Right. And so this is, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is um, something that we've been seeing a lot now. This is something that's been playing out on the emergency docket uh, or the shadow docket. Um, this is kind of one of those earlier uh, cases that got everyone's attention. Um, and I think it's it's um, relevant today. Um, but that actually was, that was a while ago. You mentioned during the Obama administration when Justice Scalia was still on the bench. It was Justice Scalia's last, as best we can tell, it was the last vote on a matter that Justice Scalia cast as a justice was the fifth vote to stay the clean power plant. And yes, that was a long time ago. And so the obvious question is, why does that matter for this? Well, that reg that litigation, um, then, you know, the, the merits of that litigation returned to the D.C. Circuit. Um, there's presidential election. The Trump administration comes in. The Trump administration doesn't like the clean power plan. And so they... Be, uh, say that they're not going to go forward the clean power plan, and they begin developing a uh, replacement regulation. So both a regulation to repeal the clean power plan and to replace it with something else called the affordable clean energy rule. And not to get too into the administrative law nitty gritty, but but the the key move that the Trump administration makes is they reject the interpretation of the Clean Air Act that had been the basis of the clean power plan. And they adopt a new interpretation of the Clean Air Act language that they say is, is the clear, unambiguous meaning of the Clean Air Act. And see, this requires this far less aggressive, in many respects, more meager regulation of greenhouse gases from power plants represented by the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. That, of course, gets challenged um, because just as uh, red states and, and, and coal companies and the like challenged the Clean Power Plan, now environmental groups and blue states and even some utilities um, challenge the Trump administration rule. And the day before uh, Biden is inaugurated, uh, the D.C. Circuit um, concludes that the Trump administration's interpretation of the Clean Air Act is wrong that the repeal of the Clean Power Plan and the replacement affordable clean energy rule are both uh, legally invalid and arbitrary and capricious. And so the case now is an appeal of that D.C. Circuit decision by red states and um, some coal, uh, coal producers. And so the question I have is, you know, in the interim, you mentioned Biden became president and uh, once again wants to change this rule. So 
neither, from my understanding, there's no clean power plant or any version of it in place, right? So why are we hearing this case? Well, that's a good question. And I, and I think this will come up in oral argument. But the D.C. Circuit's order said that both the repeal of the clean power plan and the affordable clean energy rule were invalid and had to be vacated. So as a technical legal matter, the rule rescinding the clean power plan has been invalidated. So the clean power plan is the regulation, last regulation to have been promulgated and put on the books. Now, as you mentioned, the Biden EPA says, look, the clean power plan's out of date. Uh, many utilities in much of the country have already met or exceeded the emission reduction goals the clean power plan anticipated. A, a regulation that embodies the same you know, theory or interpretation of the Clean Air Act would actually look very different today. We're going to work on something like that. So the D.C. Circuit stayed its judgment, right? So they, mm-hmm. they put pause uh, so, so that the EPA is not legally required to try and reimpose or enforce the Clean Power Plan. Uh, and that stay is pending the adoption of new regulations. So those challenging the rule argue the legal judgment that is out there requires the removal of a regulation that we liked, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, because it was not very stringent on us, um, and uh, got, uh, requires the adoption of a rule we really don't like or its equivalent. And that legal obligation is a basis uh, for challenging the rule. The, the Solicitor General's brief has questioned that, has questioned whether, in fact, that is sufficient to create the, the sort of injury that is necessary uh-huh. for, our, um, for Article Three standing. Uh, and you know, so I expect that the justices will express some interest in that. They have also said that if the court's not convinced of the standing argument, but concludes that it's weird to be reviewing a interpretation of the Clean Air Act in the abstract when there's no regulation that's about to be put in place, another alternative the court would have would be to simply vacate the D.C. Circuit decision and say to EPA, effectively, balls in your court. Um, but there is no legal obligation um, from that D.C. Circuit decision. And I would not be surprised at all if one or more justices pick up on that idea at oral argument. For some of them, at least, it might seem as an attractive way to to make this case go away without uh, embracing the, the expansive interpretation of the Clean Air Act that the D.C. Circuit uh, adopted. Right. So that's um, sort of an off-ramp for some of the justices if if they want it. But let's now get into the merits of what the parties are arguing here. It seems to me like um, administrative law has changed a bit since the Clean Power Plan was um, up at the court um, when Justice Scalia was was on the bench. And I was just wondering if you could kind of give us a little landscape, particularly about the major questions doctrine that we heard about in the vaccine mandates and how that's all going to play into this. Yeah, I mean, so the major questions doctrine has kind of been around in various forms for a while. Um, and um, Chief Justice Roberts in particular has written some opinions over the years that embody various uh, versions of it. Um, his majority opinion in King versus Burwell, his dissent in a, in a, a case that, the, that only the admin law nerds will really remember called City of Arlington versus FCC. Um, and the idea is that um, when we read a statute, that delegates power to an agency to solve a certain set of problems, that we should read that statute in light of what 
Congress, what sorts of power Congress clearly gave to the agency and what sorts of problems Congress anticipated the agency solving. But if that there's something really new and big that um, was perhaps unanticipated by Congress or that requires a, a broad and perhaps unprecedented reading of the statutory language, the court should reject that interpretation um, and instead adopt the presumption that if Congress, in fact, had wanted the agency to do that, Congress would have said so. So just the way this has come up in prior cases, you know, if uh, Congress really wanted the Food and Drug Administration to regulate uh, tobacco, it would have said so in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Uh, if Congress had wanted the IRS to have the authority to decide whether tax credits are available in federal exchanges, uh, Congress would have said so in the Affordable Care Act. Um, and here, uh, the argument is, if Congress had wanted the EPA to have the authority to go beyond kind of traditional installation of pollution control equipment mm -hmm. type emission control strategies, such as how do you perhaps remake or restructure energy production and distribution, Congress would have said so. That's essentially what the major questions um, argument looks like here. And it's it's augmented, I think, by the view of at least some of the justices that although the Supreme Court has said the EPA can regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, greenhouse gases were not what Congress was focused on and what mm -hmm. Congress had in mind when it drafted the Clean Air Act. And I suspect if Massachusetts versus EPA were re-argued today, it's, it's, it's not clear it would have five votes. So, so for at least some of the justices... I think major, the major questions arguments get a little extra push, and, and you almost have a dynamic that we saw, or the same dynamic that we saw with some of the religion cases, where you had a really big issue on the regular docket later in the term in the Fulton case, right, about, about um, discrimination law versus religious establishment. And then in the meantime, uh, through the shadow docket or motions docket or whatever we're supposed to call it, um, you have these other cases that raise the same issue and arguably ask the court to adopt a more muscular or expansive interpretation of the doctrine. And I think when you look at um, the eviction moratorium and the, the COVID vaccine and test cases that we just saw, you see the same dynamic, right? You have this case on the docket teeing up major questions and then these uh, emergency motions for stays and the like come up, um, seeming to raise the same issue. And, and that shows that several of the justices are really thinking about this question um, and, and see this as a good vehicle for it. Uh, I just wanted to clarify for our listeners, you know, you made this um, kind of analogy to the religion cases and talked about how Fulton, that case about whether or not um, foster care agencies or providers could uh, refuse to refer parents to same-sex couples and whether or not that violated the city's um, anti-discrimination laws. And you talked about in the interim through the um, evil doctor doc, docket or shadow docket or whatever we're supposed to call it, um, that there were these cases. Are you talking about the COVID cases that dealt with uh, capacity limits for um, religion and religious activity? You know, you saw some decisions of the court in you know, that that are arrive, arriving on in this emergency posture that that are being dealt with more rapidly um, than the normal case. Um, uh, you know, generally not getting oral argument, 
um, being decided with opinions that even if there are opinions, they're shorter and less developed than we usually mm -hmm. expect, right? And it looked like the court, what in these um, earlier uh, cases involving uh, religious exercise and, and COVID restrictions, that the court was adopting a slightly changed doctrine. And so the assumption was the court is thinking about this case that, you know, this bigger case that it's deciding, and these other cases are coming up and they're kind of previewing what they're thinking of doing in 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 the bigger case. And, and arguably that's what we, we got in Fulton. And I think, um, you know, the, the court in the eviction moratorium case and then in the uh, OSHA uh, uh, facts or test case, we see, we arguably see the court previewing a um, interest in a, I guess, a more muscular or regressive application of the major questions doctrine, which is also teed up in this case. So I guess looking forward, I, I, I'm, I take your point that we're kind of seeing a preview of this current court um, wanting to see a more muscular view of the major questions doctrine. I think there's interest generally in kind of tinkering around with administrative law. Um, and administrative law is admittedly one of those places, I'm sorry if I offend you, but one of those areas of the law where people don't always pay attention, right? But it's really, really important. It affects uh, every aspect of our lives, uh, potentially. And I guess just going forward, if if you think the court is kind of moving towards a more robust major question doctrine, um, I guess two questions, what will that mean for administrative law generally going forward? And then are there other areas that you see the justices kind of beefing up, um, you know, in, in the area of administrative law generally? Sure. So, so two things there. One is, um, and we saw this also with the the OSHA uh, COVID vaccinator or test case as well. Some view the major questions doctrine as just a way you interpret statutes. Some view it as a a doctrine or or a a uh, principle that is motivated by broader concerns about the scope of delegation to agencies and what people refer to as the non-delegation doctrine. And in the OSHA case, Justice Gorsuch wrote a separate opinion saying, hey, you know, even if Congress had delegated this sort of power to OSHA, it might not have been constitutional. And that echoed a prior opinion that he'd had in a case called Gundy, suggesting that the court should revive the non-delegation doctrine. Um, so that's in the background here, right? This background question of, you know, did Congress... Um, delegate this sort of power to the EPA, but then perhaps some justices um, are not only inclined to think Congress didn't, but some justices might think that Congress can't. Uh -huh. um, I, I don't think the way this case is presented, it, you're going to get five justices that are going to want to reach that that the can or can't question. But um, we know that that some of the justices are interested in that. And if they can't get that, for them, major questions is a is a fallback. So what are the implications, again, of both these directions? For major questions, I think the biggest implication or the way to think about the implications for administrative law is it really puts a, a constraint on what scholars refer to as presidential administration. Um, the dynamic that we've seen over the last 30 years of policy decisions being made in the executive branch instead of in Congress, that either uh, presidential, uh, presidential administrations aren't able to get the policies they want adopted by Congress, which was arguably what you saw with the Clinton and Bush administrations, and then a resort to using agency rulemaking and the like as a, as a substitute. 
to instead what you perhaps saw as with the Obama and Trump administrations and are perhaps arguably seeing now, where it's not that Congress is not enacting what the president wants, it's perhaps that Congress isn't enacting much of anything at all. Um, and uh, instead mm -hmm. forcing agencies to figure out, can they use statutes that were enacted 20, 30, 40, in the case of environmental law, often 50 years ago, to deal with some new problem or a problem that's just understood differently, right? Because science, scientific understanding has evolved or the, the nature of the problem has evolved and so on. And the major questions doctrine makes that challenging, right? And, and, and to think about other examples where this sort of thing arises, you know, the Telecommunications Act revised in the middle of the 1990s. Well, telecommunications and the internet and so on are radically different than they were in, in, in the 1990s. Um, can the FCC use all that old authority to deal with contemporary concerns about, uh -huh. you know, market power and, and um, distribution of information and so on? Well, I'm taking your telecommunications one a little personally because, yes, they may have um, changed since the 90s, but I still have my AOL um, email accounts, so... I myself have not updated. <laughs> right, um, but but for folks that are inter you know interested in this, when when net neutrality was the big debate, um, uh, then Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit wrote an opinion, a dissent, um, arguing that uh, the FCC did not have the authority to adopt its so-called open internet order. That was, I think, a preview of of the sort of approach to major questions we we saw hinted at in in the earlier COVID cases, and I think could see this year that really says, you know, you can't get new wine out of old bottles. You really have to go back to Congress. And if Congress doesn't give you the new authority, well, then agency, we're sorry, um, you, you, can't, uh, you can't do this. Professor, I, I have a question here because we've been talking about this major question doctrine as something that's been around for a while and here to stay and uh, the non-delegation doctrine. I'm wondering then... I'm looking at some of the briefs in this case. I looked at, for example, Professor Mortensen's brief, which is, his recent research has essentially said that this non-delegation doctrine and related major questions doctrine are basically made up or at least unsupported. And so I'm wondering what you make of that and whether that's going to matter for what the court does. Obviously, the justices can do what they want, no matter what, for whatever reason or non-reason. But what are we to make of this, what seems like pretty significant scholarship suggesting that it's kind of a house of cards here, that this is all built on? Yeah, that, that, that's, certain, I mean, that's certainly Professor Mortensen's position. And, and so, I mean, right now, I should, much more broadly, there, there has been a burst of scholarship over the last two or three years on executive power more broadly and on the, the question of delegation in particular, um, revisiting um, what the original meaning of the Constitution was and what the founding era practice was. And um, uh, Professor Mortensen, uh, along with one of his colleagues, uh, uh, Nicholas Bagley, have written one of the more important papers uh, in this literature that raises some very serious questions that at the very least require um, uh, refinement of of some theories about what limits are there on delegation, or perhaps you know presents a more a more powerful challenge and and uh, about whether or not an originalist or a justice who considers themselves to be an originalist uh, should embrace a non delegation doctrine. My my larger disagreement with Professor Mortensen is on whether or not that 
undercuts the major questions doctrine. Because one argument for the major questions doctrine is there are really serious limits on, the, on Congress's power to delegate. We're not exactly sure where the line is. So we're going to adopt a, a, a doctrine that's essentially constitutional avoidance. We're going to avoid this really hard problem of figuring out where the line between a permissible and an impermissible delegation is, and instead adopt this substantive canon of construction that always narrows the scope of delegation to avoid that problem. And I think if that's the sole or only way we conceive of, of the major questions doctrine, I think, I think Professor Mortensen raises some important points that have to be responded to. Um, an alternative way of viewing the major questions doctrine, and this was something actually then Judge Breyer uh, suggested in a in a law review article in the mid nineteen eighties, is that it's really a, a way of thinking about how Congress in fact acts and how it delegates power. And if we think about this as as a question of agency law, not agency as in federal agencies, but agency as in principal agent relationships, and how it is that we interpret instructions and authorities that the principal, in this case Congress, gives to agents, in this case agencies, then the idea that when there are gaps or things that are vague or incomplete or ambiguous, that we assume that entails the power to fill in the interstices, but it doesn't necessarily entail the power to uh, chart a new path in some unprecedented or unforeseen direction, but that's actually a fairly sensible rule to interpret documents. And if the, the major questions doctrine is understood at, as being informed by that latter view, um, that again had been, had been suggested by, at least as early in the, uh, as the mid-1980s by, by then Judge Breyer, well then I don't think it matters whether or not the, the non-delegation doctrine is in fact something compelled by an original uh, understanding of the, of the Constitution. And I should say, you know, I haven't done the original research myself on on the founding era of the non-delegation doctrine. Um, there, you know, I've been reading the stuff that Professor Mortensen and Professor Bagley and Professor Perillo at Yale and Professor Sugarman at Fordham and uh, Professor Worman at Arizona State and Professor Hamburger at Columbia and um, Professor Rappaport at U.S. I mean, there's a whole bunch of folks and some You're folks leave I've left I've left some folks out. Um, uh, some of whom are, are are contributors to a book uh, that's coming out from a. a the American Enterprise Institute that I contributed to um, that that tries to translate what some of this research means for doctrine. But the point is there's a lot of research in this area right now that at the very least um, should produce a more sophisticated, nuanced understanding of what the scope of the non-delegation is or should be uh, if such do a doctrine actually should exist. And, you know, as an academic in this area, you know, this is awesome, right? Because lots of really smart people are really engaging this important question. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully uh, all of this scholarship will inform the way the justices think about it. All right. Well, that was interesting. I think we got to hit on not just admin law and the environment. We talked about abortion, vaccines, uh, religion. We got it all in. The whole administrative state. Boom. Uh, be sure to follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. 
On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On the Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.